Nuts are really, really useful when it's used appropriately in these situations, particularly when someone's struggling with mental illness for a long time. So the point of these meds is to really allow you to be yourself without anxiety or depression or whatever other mental illness we're speaking of, without those things holding you back. Welcome to the Thoughts from the Couch podcast. I'm anxiety treatment expert and licensed mental health counselor, Justine Carino. I'm here to help you understand the root of your anxiety so you can create new habits that actually stick. Toxic behavior patterns, dysfunctional relationships, and childhood family trauma are all linked to the anxiety you experience. And that's exactly what we dive into on this podcast. Join me as I guide you through flipping the script on your negative thoughts, setting healthy boundaries in your relationships, and cultivating a self-care practice that's as unique as you are. From my couch to yours, let's create your path to peace. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Thoughts from the Couch podcast. For those of you who may be tuning in for the first time, I am an anxiety treatment expert and licensed mental health counselor. I own a private practice in New York where I provide both individual and family therapy. And I also have an online course that teaches you evidence-based skills to manage feelings of anxiety in seven days called The Path to Peace. Enough about me. I have to say, I am really excited to share today's episode with you guys. I spoke with my friend and colleague, psychiatrist Dr. Shreya Nagula, about medication for anxiety, as well as myths related to psychiatric medication. I know many people have fears about taking medication to support their mental health, so I hope this conversation can answer some questions for you. I can truly spend hours raving about Dr. Nagula. We collaborate on many patients, and I have to say, my patients love working with her, and I do too. She is so intelligent, so thorough, kind, creative, and collaborative as a psychiatrist. So let's get into this episode. Hi, Shreya. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your career? Sure. I am a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. I finished my training in child adolescent psychiatry about a decade ago. And I was working at a few different academic hospitals, um, doing a lot of education with trainees on things like self-injury, suicide prevention, college mental health. And I reached a point in my career where I decided I wanted to focus more on those things in a private practice setting. And so I left the academic setting to start private practice. And so... Shreya, did you always want to be a psychiatrist or was this something you figured out once you were in college? I actually love that question. I've always wanted to be a psychiatrist, actually, and I went into med school thinking psychiatry. Um, I love, interestingly, I've always liked talking to teens and thought that they were kind of a misunderstood group a little bit. And so I went in thinking adolescent psychiatry decided as in med school that I really don't love procedures. So it worked out remarkably well that psychiatry was very fitting. I do love the talking aspect of the field. And so I always knew psychiatry. So I have you here today to discuss psychiatric medication um, and really help us learn more about why medications can be effective in treating mental health diagnoses, as well as debunk some myths 
that I often hear when working with patients. So my listeners know that I support the use of medication in combination with therapy to yield the best outcome for treating depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, you name it. Um, And I also see the most progress with clients that start a medication to treat whatever they're dealing with whether it's anxiety or depression, that's always the best outcome that I see personally. Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, and that's actually been studied, right? And that's been studied. Exactly. The research shows us that. Why do you think people are afraid of taking medication for their mental health, but they easily take medication to treat common physical illnesses? It's so true. People have a much harder time separating themselves from emotional concerns than they do their physical ones, right? And so I think part of this stems from a perception in society that all emotions can or should be controlled or regulated by oneself, um, rather than recognizing that there's a chemical imbalance that could be addressed as well. We also don't have objective data to look at. If you look at a blood pressure, it's a high, you know it's high, you could treat with medication, right? There's no blood pressure number for depression or anxiety. We have rating scales, but they're part of the picture. They're not the full picture. And so it's much harder then to separate it again from oneself and to feel like you can or can't control those things on your own. Yeah. Um, what's really fascinating to me, though, is that so many medical illnesses are actually way more difficult to treat effectively when there's a comorbid or untreated depression, anxiety. Right. And so people with different chronic medical illnesses are actually at an increased risk for depression and treating both of those concurrently gives you the best outcomes. Wow. And so the and I'm thinking too, like the best outcome for quality of life in general for that person. Absolutely. Fascinating. No, that's so helpful to look at it that way. You're right. We have this belief that we should be responsible and in control. If if we're in control of all of our emotions, we're doing something well, we're responsible. And this is, I should be able to manage all of my emotions. What you're saying is there's things that we cannot manage emotionally due to what's going on in our brain. And in our lives, honestly, lives can get stressful. And so Sometimes we do need some tools to deal with those things too. And that's okay. That is okay. I love that. So I'm going to help you. No, you're going to help me. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to help me debunk some myths that I hear a lot. So we're going to jump into some of them. Okay. The first myth is I can become addicted to psychiatric medication. Tell me what you think of that. Okay. So... I guess this is partially dependent on what they're prescribed. There are certain meds that best treat anxiety disorders. I'm going to focus Mm -hmm. on anxiety because Mm -hmm. that is the one that probably comes up the most with this question. There are many classes of meds. There is SSRIs, which work on something called serotonin and increase the amount of serotonin in the brain, to put it simply. Um, that or SNRIs are the categories that kind of work best and are the first choice for depression and anxiety both. There are other medications called benzodiazepines that are also prescribed sometimes. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about the difference between those. Awesome. Um, And in the setting of addiction, the benzos are extremely addictive. I'm not going to lie. Those are highly, highly addictive meds. SSRIs and SNRIs, again, first choice for depression, for anxiety, are not addictive medications. They actually, the SSRIs and SNRIs, the ones that work on serotonin, 
they take longer to work to start working um, effectively, but they also help decrease symptoms long-term, right? While benzos feel really good in the moment. It's almost like having a shot of alcohol, to put it simply, but they don't treat anything long-term. So those could be useful for discrete situations, things like a fear of flying and having to get on a plane and go somewhere. You know it's time limited, it's situation limited, and it works great in that. When it's day-to-day -day anxiety, they're not as good. There's such a high risk of abuse and of addiction as well. And part of that is because there's significant side effects, even from withdrawing from the medication or once a medication wears off, there could be a lot of rebound anxiety. This is again for the benzos now. Um, and there could be irritability, sleep problems, like hand tremors, all sorts of things when you're kind of coming off of it. Whereas SSRIs are much easier to come off of as well. You don't have that same peak high feeling or peak low with these medications. You take them every day, it builds up in your system, and that's how the diagnoses or the illnesses get treated. Yeah. So a few follow-up questions, and that makes complete sense. What are some of the common names of SSRIs yes. and benzos so people could be like, oh, I know what you're talking about? Absolutely. So SSRIs are Things like Prozac, Zoloft, Celexa, Lexapro, Paxil, those are probably the big ones you're going to hear about. SNRIs, the big ones are, and I'm using the brand names because those are the ones people know more. Um, SNRIs are Cymbalta, Effexor, uh, Pristake are probably the biggest three that are talked about. I always see the Cymbalta commercials on TV. <laughs> they have really good branding. I'm always hearing yeah. about them. Commercials are a whole different beast. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to go. We don't have to open that door. That could be the next one. <laughs> there you go. And also, talk about serotonin. As for someone listening, they might be like, what is serotonin? How can you explain that? So serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It's essentially a chemical in the body that, and every neurotransmitter has different functions, so to speak. So serotonin is tied to depression or depressive symptoms, anxiety as well. Um, norepinephrine is tied more to rewards and like motivation. And so each one has its own kind of thing. I said rewards, I'm sorry, I meant dopamine for rewards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for motivation yeah. and so each one has its own thing and the way these meds work is or the theory behind the illnesses is that there isn't enough oh my god enough depression in the body there isn't enough <laughs> serotonin in the body and so they help increase the amount in the brain got it so they increase the amount of serotonin in the brain because accessible the by yeah the brain essentially got it because there are deficits of it going on correct Okay. Love that explanation. You know, I have a lot of um, patients that will ask like, well, how does it work? Right. So I think we're getting an answer. But they're also like, how does it feel? And I hear a lot of people say like, it takes the static out of your head. It takes away the noise that you feel. How do you try and like say that to your patients when they're curious about how they will feel? So and you know what? Yes. This Sorry to interrupt you. This That's might okay. be myth number two actually. So myth number two is medication will change my personality. So let's talk about that a little bit. I would love to talk about that. So okay. our goal with meds is like any other type of medication for any other illness, it's to improve functioning and alleviate symptoms. 
symptoms that are impairing and debilitating. And that is a big component of it that we'll get into in a second. Um, we want to get kind of alleviate the symptoms that are getting in the way of day-to-day -day life. And so if something's causing immense distress, take a teen, if they can't get out of bed and make it to school, well, that's kind of a problem, right? That's mm -hmm. what we want them to do. We want them to experience that and, you know, live up to that responsibility. And if they can't, well, why can't they? So we're really looking at things like that. If someone's suicidal or there's other, you know, harmful behaviors going on, those are somewhat impairing for them. And so we really want to treat that. And when meds are used, the re meds are really, really useful when it's used appropriately in these situations, particularly when someone's struggling with mental illness for a long time. So the point of these meds is to really allow you to be yourself without anxiety or depression or whatever other mental illness we're speaking of, without those things holding you back. Let's take anxiety or depression. So I'm going to focus on anxiety. And the way I describe it is actually somewhat similar to what you had said. So do you remember old school TVs or radios where if you're right between channels or stations, it gets really staticky yes, yes. and annoying white noise that comes? <laughs> yeah. Anxiety or the intrusive thoughts of anxiety, I describe them as having that annoying staticky white noise in your head 24-7. Mm. Those are the intrusive thoughts. So now try to picture yourself having a conversation with someone or focusing on your book or a TV show with this noise going on constantly. It's really hard. You can't focus. You can't. It's debilitating, right? And so the goal of meds is to really help bring down that white noise, bring down those intrusive thoughts, obsessive thoughts, so that you can do the things you want to do. They help kind of bring out your personality almost because you're treating the concerns that are now getting in the way of it and really being able to shine the way you were supposed to or meant to and living up to your own potential. That's such a good, helpful analogy for people to hear because someone that's suffering, suffering with anxiety to the point that it's a disorder, they're feeling that static all of the time. You know, even for myself last night, I was so anxious about something all day yesterday and I like couldn't sleep and I was getting so frustrated. I like wanted to just shut my mind off. I was like, can I just go to sleep right now? Like I want to stop thinking Which about this. Which makes it this. much easier to sleep then, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. So here I am with no sleep today and like I feel so much better. But then I'm thinking this is what my patients struggle with is that feeling all of the time. And what a beautiful thing to be able to help them get rid of that static. Yeah. I agree. And so it's not, and I really need to stress, it's not changing personality. It's letting you live up to that personality and be, show that personality again, which I would venture that probably was hidden a little bit if you're really suffering for long enough. Oh, I love this. This is such a great way to explain this process to people. So this is anything else that they should expect when starting a medication. It's not going to work right away. Some people feel something right away, um, particularly with the SSRIs and SNRIs. If they do, we think that's a little bit of a placebo effect. You're taking something, so you're going to feel better. I'm not going to lie. If you're feeling better, I'm a little bit okay with that <laughs> placebo effect. Also, it is going to be more likely to start working with time as well if you are getting some of that. So that's the first thing. The second is you're not going to feel it, right? You're not going to feel these intense changes. You're going to mm. feel like yourself again. And that's a hard thing to describe, but the best thing I can, or best way I can describe it is almost not having that white noise anymore is really kind of overcoming that piece. 
the other thing I need to need to need to stress, and I think we'll get into this, or I may get into this, I'm sure a little bit later, but um, we're not trying to get rid of normal emotions, right? If someone is sick, if someone's in the hospital, you want to feel sad. That is a healthy, normal emotion. We're not trying to numb you to that. If someone has a major exam to study for, well, that pressure to study is a little bit of anxiety, right? That is a form of anxiety. And you don't want to get rid of that. You don't want to be like, yeah, it's not a big deal. I don't need to study. That's not really healthy either. And yes. so our goal is really to get rid of what is impairing, not everyday emotion. I love that you bring that up. And I have another episode this season with another therapist who we're kind of talking about. It's okay to feel okay-ish, right? Like it's normal to not have good days. It's normal to have bad days and uncomfortable emotions. And I don't know if you see this, but I see it a lot with my younger patients that are like the teenagers or like middle school, high school age. There's this expectation to be happy all of the time. Yes. And I'm wondering if it's developmental or if it's their generation being raised in the social media culture or what, or if it's just part of where they're at in life. But I had a few um, patients say over the past few months, like, I'm just not happy all of the time. And I am like, wait a minute, let's talk about that. You're not supposed to be happy. all. (laughs) That's a fleeting feeling. Just like sadness can be fleeting and anxiety. Happiness too comes and goes. Do you see that as well? I see that all the time. And Along with that, I've seen a lot of teens today almost say when they're not happy, they're numb. Like there's no just middle ground, right? It's this, it's extreme emotions. And I think part of it is maybe generational and the the social media component, which I'm sure we can get into for multiple hours, Mm -hmm. because that's a big deal. I think it's also, we're not teaching it necessarily. Mm. I will stress almost every appointment that these emotions, these feelings are healthy feelings and healthy emotions, right? Again, the sadness, the nervousness, happiness is great, but it's also not a day to day. And there is a middle ground that you want to strike. And I don't know that we're necessarily giving that message in the same way as we might have in the past. Yeah, I think you're so right. And it's that's a big part of my work sometimes is to reframe the belief that a lot of people have today that we should expect happiness all the time. And if I'm not happy all the time, there's something wrong with me. And it's just reframing this because it's it like it's where we get along. (laughs) Exactly. It's why we're a good pair. Exactly. Totally. I am so happy to announce that my first ever online program, The Path to Peace, is here. This is a step-by-step mini course to help you create your unique anxiety management routine in just seven days. This was designed to help the overachieving, people-pleasing perfectionist gain control over racing thoughts, manage overwhelming feelings of anxiety, and craft a self-care practice to optimize their mental health through evidence-based treatment methods. These strategies will leave you with a sense of freedom from your own thoughts, help you live more presently, and make decisions out of intention instead of fear. The course includes the exact process that I use with my one-to-one clients in my private practice that has resulted in them telling me that they feel like a new person because of implementing the tools they've learned from our work together. You can find the link to the Path to Peace in the notes section of this episode and on my website, carinocounseling.com. 
Okay, let's get to myth number three. Okay. All of my problems will go away if I start medication. <laughs> if only, right? Right. <laughs> yes. Um, my job would be a lot easier if that were true. <laughs> totally. Totally. But in all honesty, learning how to cope differently is probably the most important thing. And problems are not going to go away, right? We're not trying to, again, make someone numb. We're not trying to get rid of every problem. That is not real life. Mm -hmm. We need the therapy. We need to change our lifestyles to really be able to deal with problems because they're going to be there. They're not going Mm -hmm. anywhere. Mm -hmm. As much as people want to. I wish we had a quick or magic fix. No, I I don't really because that's not healthy. But we really need to remember that's not medication. I love that you bring up someone's lifestyle. And I'm assuming that's part of your like assessment and intake with new patients is what is Absolutely. your lifestyle? Yes. Um, and are you working out? Are you yeah. in therapy? Are you doing things for yourself? Are you doing mindfulness? All of that. Are you sleeping? I'm finding are you sleeping <laughs> because we work with so many college students. I think yep. it's a norm for that age. Like, oh, I only get five, six hours. I'm like, no, like, that's almost we like need a more. sense of pride, right? Yeah. And like, if that lifestyle aspect is not put together, you shouldn't really (laughs) expect your emotions to be in a good place either. Exactly. Okay. Myth number four, and I find this a lot, is people thinking they'll be emotionally weak or considered emotionally weak if they need medication. That is a big one. And I hear that as probably the biggest myth that comes my way. I might argue that taking control of one's life and one's emotional and mental health is actually something that makes a person strong rather than weak. It does make me a little bit sad when people blame themselves for their mental illness and that's almost what they're doing, right? This is my fault. I am weak by feeling Mm. this way. And it again speaks to some of those chemical imbalances that maybe aren't addressed or overlooked sometimes. The other piece of that is suffering does not make people stronger, right? Mm. Working towards a positive mindset does or a positive mm-hmm. outcome. Those certainly do. And there's risks and benefits. We think of risks and benefits for medication, right? We always say, what are the risks? What are the benefits of taking this? But what about the risks and benefit of illness? Depression mm. has risks. Depression has benefits. So does anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's self-protective in some way. And maybe there's a denial for a reason. But there's also risks to a lot of these things. And so it's really weighing those two things at the end. I love that. That's a really so. good way to look at this. Yeah. And you know what? I, I see a lot of people um, maybe put up. I don't know if put up's the word to use, but put up with their depression for way longer than they need to or should. And then once they start a medication, they're like, why didn't I do this sooner? Yes. When I was, what was I trying to fight off here? What was I thinking? Yes. <laughs> you mentioned suffering. People feel like they have to suffer um, to be stronger. And I think we can apply that to so many things in life. We sometimes have beliefs that if we're suffering at the end, something good is going to happen or we need to suffer in order to accomplish some kind of goal. And like, I can unpack that for days too, about like, what should we be suffering and what does suffering mean? And why do you have this belief? And so, yeah, you're right. People think that they might have to suffer in order to be seen as strong, which is that's its own therapy session itself. Yes. Okay, so this leads me and to myth. Back to the last myth, honestly, we're still going to have problems, right? You'll still have some suffering in there. Yes. <laughs> Your whole life does not have to be suffering. 
I love that you brought that up too. Yes, with medication, you will still have suffering from time to time, but just not all the time every day. And you'll be able to cope with it differently, hopefully. Yes. And that's what I say to um, a lot of my patients too, is like, when you start a medication, you will get to a baseline where you can now practice some of the skills we're trying to do. Um, And I have to educate a lot of parents on this as well. Sometimes I'll have someone that is just so anxious or so depressed and they've been in therapy and there's zero progress. And the parents might be like, well, they're not doing this, the skills. So that's why they're not improving. And sometimes I have to say, well, maybe they can't do the skills because they're not at an even playing field yet to be able to even try the skills out and medication can get them to that baseline. So now they can be present in session and practice the skills between session. What are your thoughts on that? That is 110% what I say to people all the time, right? It's very much about how much are we able to utilize and actually internalize those skills. And it's not an easy thing to do for anybody, but the more depressed you are, the more apathetic you might be or indifferent you might be, right? The more anxious you are, or really you can overlap all of these things, the more avoidant you might be and less effort you want to put into learning how to cope differently. And so you really do want to see this holistically as much as you can. There's a reason that the combo probably works best for more people. And you can't just have a pill, just like you can't just have therapy for certain people, Mm -hmm. right? They need the full approach. Totally. And I'm also thinking like, and I, I do a lot of exposure therapy um, and I really can't do it until someone's on a medication at times because they can't tolerate actually doing the exposures. Yeah, they'll get too panicky, right? They'll get too panicky. They'll try it. They'll fail. They'll never want to do it again. So I really have to consider who I start exposure therapy with if they're in the place to be able to actually be successful with it. And Mm -hmm. the most success I see with that is if they're on a medication that gets them to more of a baseline, then they can attempt these exposures, they do them, and then they are like, wow, I'm capable of doing this. And then it gains traction for the next exposure. And then there we go. We have a successful person treating their anxiety. How much more empowering is that, right? Yes. I I love this. Okay. Next question. Myth number five. Once I start medication, I can never come off of it. Well, I mean, that's honestly like a We just had to segue into this conversation because the best way to come off of it is really treating holistically. And that means lifestyle, right? The exercise, the wellness stuff, the meditation or mindfulness, it means therapy and really learning those healthy coping skills, right? Just like you mentioned, you're in support of someone trying meds, which I love. And I love that the support is there. Obviously, we're also very much in support of someone being in therapy (laughs) in the same way, right? right? Um, The more you're able to learn to cope with stress in different ways or in healthier ways, the more likely you are to be able to come off meds in the future too. Don't get me wrong. This is based on a lot of different factors and different illnesses have different treatment courses. For depression or anxiety, we're considering things like how severe are the symptoms? Have you been in therapy? How long have you been in therapy? Are you unable to progress because of whatever illness is holding you back from doing so, right? Have you relapsed in the past? There's so many different, and what type of uh, therapy has been used, right? So there's so many different factors that go into this. 
majority of people are not going to have to be on meds, especially for something like depression or anxiety, not going to have to be on meds long term. We usually recommend staying on them for at least six months after returning to their baseline um, because and ideally up to a year because that's just the whole the way the brain chemistry works. That along with therapy really are the best recipe for success. Therapy, mindfulness, exercise, all of those are really important in terms of maintaining remission or rather not having that impairing anxiety or depression um, in the future. I do want to add, though, if somebody does need to stay on meds much longer for whatever reason, that in no way changes that ability to be successful or happy or healthy or fulfilled. And that's okay too. And I think we forget that there is nothing wrong with that for some people. Yes. And I totally agree. And I'm just thinking, and I don't know if this is a fair comparison, but like I have thyroid issues. So I take a thyroid medication that I'll probably have to take for the rest of my life. And I'm totally acceptable and accepting of that. And for Mm -hmm. some people, that's literally an easier pill to swallow that they'll be on medication (laughs) forever if it's a physical condition. But thinking that they might need a medication for their emotional health long term feels scary for some people, which goes Mm -hmm. back to the whole beginning of this conversation. Yep, absolutely agree. What are some, I know we, we were talking about anxiety, depression, like those are some of the illnesses that people, you see people come off medication from. Are there some diagnoses that you see that you're like, okay, this is going to probably be a lifelong process that you're on a yeah. medication? Yeah. I mean, so there's again, different trajectories, right? So for kids, there are some that can continue through most of childhood, but then as an adult, that could change. So ADHD is one that comes up a lot. Um, though we're also seeing now that a lot of ADHD does progress into adulthood. We weren't necessarily giving it that credit before, but that's a different topic. Ticks or Tourette's or something that often uh, die down by the time someone reaches adulthood. There are ones that start a little bit later, like during teen years, that will often um, require chronic treatment. So bipolar and schizophrenia are the two big ones that you will see that for. Those aren't diagnoses that... um, would just kind of go away with time necessarily. Right. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. And yeah, it's, it, like you said, it depends on the person's functioning and some disorders really interfere with functioning and we need the medication to help level the playing field. And that's okay. And again, even for the ones that are chronic, right? That's okay. Yes. It's okay. All right. Myth number six. This is a funny one. Psychiatrists will push meds onto anyone that comes in to see them. <laughs> this is a fun one. I love, I'd love I to like hear your perspective one. on this. All right. So it's a little bit of a tough one because some psychiatrists might do that, just as some people in any field would have the same reputation. But again, it's harder to see that for emotional or mental health than it is for physical health, right? Yes. I think most people who go into this are doing it to help people feel better and not just throw something at them. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Just going to start with that. We're kind of on the same side and on the same (laughs) page as to what we want, right? As a patient or the provider treating them, we want the same things. Yes. And so anyone effective, anyone good is going to do a comprehensive evaluation and really try to look at whether there are certain concerns that can best be helped by meds. That doesn't mean seeing someone 
for five minutes and throwing a medication at them. It means talking to them, getting collateral depending on the age, figuring out their functionality, right? Doing rating skills, talking to a therapist, if there's a therapist involved, really kind of putting the whole picture together. And that takes some time to do. So by the time you're done with that, you're no longer just throwing meds anymore. <laughs> yes, yes. You've done a comprehensive evaluation. Absolutely. And as stress again, we're looking for symptoms that are impairing, right? Not yes. masking normal emotions. Yes. And so a well-trained psychiatrist is really going to use a lot of restraint when starting meds and consider it as part of a, part of a larger treatment plan. I, I think this myth is often due to a lack of awareness about current practices. Obviously, historically, there have been things in the past, right? Like I think, again, with any field, there have been neg negative experiences that have happened. And people might have their own negative experiences that are kind of amplifying the situation for them or the thought for them. But we also, I think, tend to put mental health on a different pedestal than physical health, as we've been saying. And so how many of us, let's say you do see someone and they do give you something after 10 minutes. Well, how many of us have gotten a second or a third opinion if we have a broken bone, right? right. We don't just go with the first thing we hear and then all of a sudden shun that for the, forever. Yes. There's a goodness of fit with therapists. There's a goodness of fit for psychiatrists. And if you find someone that you don't think understands you or understands the nuances to your story, then you find someone else, right? And it's a whole goodness of fit model that goes into all of this, I think. I love that. And you know what? One of the reasons um, I love sending patients to you is because you are very comprehensive, probably more so like more than I've seen in a while, which I think also gives some comfort to patients because what is your process? Like how if you're working with an adult, would you say it's like one or two or three sessions before you have an idea of a medication? What's your process when you meet somebody new? Oh, so my process is to always kind of see them first mm -hmm. and maybe follow up with some rating skills. I get some brief information from them about their history, more so just why they're coming in to see me, um, social history, stuff like that. And then um, a little bit about past psych history, if things have been tried or not. But I try to keep that really minimal till I see them because so much can get misconstrued on paper as opposed mm -hmm. to act during a conversation. So after that, about one hour for the first appointment. After that, I'll, again, talk to the collateral that's there. Um, if there's a therapist or for younger patients, if there is a school counselor, guidance counselor, or mm -hmm. something like that, that is useful for me to speak to or primary care doctor. And then um, I will maybe give them some more rating scales to fill out things on either OCD or depression, anxiety. So there's a lot of different examples out there. Look at those and then meet with them again for what I consider a feedback session. And that's when we talk about what I'm thinking diagnostically, what um, medications could potentially be helpful, if any, what they want in at a treatment and what they're comfortable with and kind of figure it out going forward, like what's going to be most helpful for them. I love that you use the rating scales because that's some data, you know, that's going to help you make this decision. I love yeah. that. Speaking of rating scales, do you ever have patients that are like, so I took this quiz online uh -huh. from, like, from like Cosmo <laughs> and now I have borderline personality disorder. I'm like, no, we, we, that's not yep. a true assessment. Or it's not a TikTok video, right? <laughs> oh, the TikTok. <laughs> Everyone's coming to therapy because of TikTok. I Every love TikTok. Every single one's got something. <laughs> Go TikTok. Um, somehow they have nuance that ticks, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 
exactly. So it was, um, I thought of that when you said rating skills. Yep, exactly. And so actually, I love that you said that because what I was about to say is that rating skills are a part of the picture. You can yes. never go just by that. If you could, then again, my job would be a lot easier. Totally. Right? But so much can overlap symptom-wise. And so you really want to figure out if they have decreased concentration. Is it because they've got it's like ADHD or do they have that intrusive white noise obsessive thought going on that's really getting in the way of them concentrating right or are they just so depressed they're lying in bed and they just don't want to do anything and they can't focus on anything that they're doing and so there's so much that can go into any one of those questions which is why after I give it during the feedback we'll actually talk about the scales a little bit and so I can make sure I understand what it is that's going on with them. Yeah, so you're not just a drug dealer on the street pushing meds on everybody. I'm not. I'm sorry to break it to you. <laughs> you are not. You have gone to school for a very long time, actually, to have these conversations time. with people. <laughs> you're very well trained. Okay, number seven, which is our last myth, is I've tried meds and they don't work, so other ones won't work for me either. Okay. So, I mean, that one, I, and I fully understand where people are coming from with that, right? You have tried something, you put in the effort, and it's hard to then be hopeful or optimistic about what else there is out there. Every person is unique and everyone will respond to different meds differently. They'll respond to meds differently, right? So you might respond differently than me, but then you'll also, you yourself will respond to different meds differently. And so it's really about trying to figure out why a med's not working, figuring out what is the most optimal effect with the least amount of side effects. And the guidelines are actually to try two different meds in any given class before switching to the next class. Because we know that there's individual variability within each class even. And so it does not in any way mean it's hopeless. There are differences. And it's just giving it that time to work and really be... It's not time as much as like the the effort, right? To put in and maintain that hope. And there's something out there for everyone. I love that. I learned something new. So two met, you want to try two meds within the same class before switching classes. Fascinating. That makes so much sense. You'll respond differently potentially to any single medication. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting and good to know. So people need to understand maybe they need to try something else and also maybe like dosages weren't optimized either. absolutely thank you for saying that yes if someone's tried you know zoloft at 25 milligrams when anxiety usually needs at least 50 up to 200 maybe even higher the rare case but still that's not really gonna work <laughs> yeah, yeah i think so i learned I'm this so from glad you I, that. <laughs> I, I learned this from you in some of our conversations this is something people don't really know yeah that's true yeah. The other thing I want to say with that is that yeah. we sometimes think side effects are also part of it. So I always ask about kind of somatic oh. symptoms beforehand too. So if someone's telling me they're nauseous every day on a med, but were you nauseous every day before the medication? And if mm. so, is it that different, right? So kind of figuring out that piece is really important too. Right. Because I think people do worry a lot about side effects. And Absolutely. what's your experience? As as they should. What's your experience with that? Do I guess it's dependent on the medication and the person, how everyone reacts to it differently. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So what would your advice be for someone that's looking to consult with a psychiatrist for medication as an option for treatment? Any words of wisdom for someone going through that process? 
Yeah. Um, three words. Get the evaluation. <laughs> Just go for it. Just, I mean, you might be surprised, right? Start talking about how you're feeling about what's going on. To, together, you guys can decide what that best course of action is. Again, you're on the same page. You're not on opposite sides of this playing field. And so though the ambivalence is real and it's an important thing to think about, it shouldn't get in the way of your own progress. You always have a say in your treatment plan and whether or not you want to continue or commit to different recommendations or find somebody else or stop the process altogether. But you won't know unless you actually give it a try like anything else in life. Yeah, you're right. Like just have the evaluation and then you have choices from there. It doesn't mean just because you're having the evaluation, this is the end all be all. You have choices. Not at all, ever. Ever. No one's going to shove something down your throat, I promise you. Exactly, (laughs) exactly. Oh, thank you so much for your wisdom and expertise. Um, How can listeners reach out to you if they're interested in working with you? I have a Psychology Today profile, so that's probably the best way to contact me. My email and my phone number are both on that. Um, And I believe I had sent that as well. I'll put that in the show notes. Perfect. And then that's probably the best way to get me right now. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. I really appreciate that you wanted to have a psychiatrist on. Uh, You know what? (laughs) It's been a long time coming and I'm so glad I I finally went for it. I love us working together. It's been fun. Me too. Thanks, Shreya. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed listening to Dr. Nagula as much as I enjoyed talking to her and learning from her. I also hope you had some clarity about whether or not you should start a medication to treat your symptoms of anxiety or depression or whatever it is you're struggling with. Listen, this is a personal choice and always do your research and have a consultation before deciding to try a medication. But Evidence-based research shows that a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy plus medication yields the best outcomes for treating anxiety and depression. So if you enjoyed this episode, you may also want to listen to episode number 30 titled Adulting with ADHD. In there, you will hear confidence coach Jamie McLaughlin talk about how medication greatly improved her mental health and how she went her entire life with ADHD and didn't know it. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in and don't forget to rate or review this podcast so I can get this content out into the world and support more people on their mental health journeys. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information shared during this episode. For complimentary anxiety management tools, you can head over to my website, carinocounseling.com. Thank you so much for listening and go enjoy all the moments your day has to offer you.